As you get settled there, if you don't know already at this point, we're in the middle of a series called Counterculture, looking at a number of different cultural issues and really what the Bible says about those issues and how we as Christians should think through those issues, how we talk about these issues in our culture today. Uh, Last week we talked about what the Bible says about homosexuality. Today we're going to be continuing that subject and see uh, what the Bible says about marriage and gay marriage, um, same-sex marriage. And then next week we'll be talking about what the Bible says about abortion. The week following, what the Bible says about Islam or this rise of violent or militant Islam. And then finally, what the Bible says about evolution and the, the science, some of those debates that we have both within Christianity and in our larger uh, society. Last week was a, a longer sermon, longer talk, because we tried to go through a number of the key texts that the Bible teaches about homosexuality and look at the number of obje- objections. If you weren't here last week, I, have, I can't go over all those things again this week. Uh, th- those messages or that message is online. There's also a, a sheet on the back table. Uh, that contains uh, a shell, a framework of a number of things that were mentioned last week. So if you don't have one of these already and are interested or want one to share, uh, grab one of those on the way out. To help you this week, there's another handout, again, with a number of questions that help people to follow along on the sermon, uh, especially for some of us who are younger. And there's an insert in your bulletin as well. This insert in your bulletin has a number of resources or books on the topic of homosexuality, written by Christians. And I've written a brief write-up on some of these books and what they're about. And if you're looking for more in-depth teaching on these subjects, then those books are are helpful. Those are the, That's the place to start. If you want thicker ones, then you can come and ask me for some thicker materials as well, if those are insufficient. Okay, but those will, these will give you a good start. So what we're going to be looking at today is this whole topic of marriage and same-sex marriage and how we as Christians should think about this. Um, it's been legal in Canada since um, 2005 across our country. The Supreme Court of the United States just legalized it across the United States just recently this, this summer. And so we're going to look at how we as Christians and what does the Bible have to say about marriage and how we are, should react. We're also going to be talking about issues of singleness and gender uh, this morning as these are all their issues that are typically spoke of at the same time. So as I mentioned, our society here in Canada has redefined what marriage is and redefining what gender is. In 1999, most legal benefits commonly associated with marriage were given to same-sex couples who were cohabiting together in our country. Uh, Starting in 2003, the provinces began to legalize same-sex marriage, starting with Ontario and B.C., and then soon, eight out of the ten provinces and one out of three territories legalized gay marriage. Uh, Alberta, interestingly, being one of those provinces that did not legalize it before it was legalized federally on July 20th, 2005, making Canada the fourth country and the first country outside of Europe to legalize same-sex unions. So what should Christians think about such things? Uh, does the government have the, the right to define what marriage is? Uh, has this historically how the government has operated? So we'll look at some of those questions here today. One objection that we didn't tackle last week when we talked about homosexuality, a common objection is Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. He never condemned homosexuality. 
And the text that we're going to go through this morning, we're not going to jump around the Bible this morning. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 19 because here we see Jesus address the issue of marriage and how God designed male and female and what God's design was for sexual intimacy only found in that one flesh relationship between a husband and a wife. So yes, Jesus did not speak directly on homosexuality, but doesn't mean that he approved of it. Jesus didn't speak directly on pornography. Jesus didn't speak directly on bestiality. Jesus didn't speak directly on pedastry, uh, an older man um, having uh, sexual relations with a younger man. Okay, Jesus didn't speak on those things, but doesn't mean that he gave his approval to those things. Jesus defined for us what are the bounds of sexual intimacy in a relationship, in a marriage between a husband and a wife. And this whole objection that Jesus never spoke about homosexuality assumes or tries to pit Jesus against the rest of the Bible and tries to say, well, the Bible might condemn homosexuality, but Jesus was okay with it. That view is completely contrary to what Jesus himself taught because Jesus said that this Bible, every single word of it is the word of God, that it's unbreakable, that it's inerrant, that even down to the jot and tittle, it's not going to pass away until all of it's fulfilled. He said heaven and earth are going to pass away before these words pass away. So the whole idea that you can put Jesus against the Bible is just a false dichotomy. No one can put those two things against one another might be surprising to some people who have this objection that Jesus actually didn't pen a single word of the scriptures, but rather his disciples and prophets penned the words of God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus understood every single word that we have before us today to be God's words written to us. And so therefore, authoritative. Okay, so even understanding this, this objection... Jesus does address the issue of marriage and of homosexual marriage here in Matthew chapter 19. I want to read to you again the first six verses in Matthew 19. So Matthew 19, starting in verse number one through verse six, it says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees, the the Jewish religious leaders, came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what these religious leaders came, they came to Jesus and were seeking to to test them. Seeking to to put him against other people. Because there was a debate in that time period. What are the, the grounds for divorce? When can you separate from your wife? When can you not? And there was varying opinions among that. And so they want to pose these questions to Jesus. And Jesus brings them all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, that is God, made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, there's God's design. God's creative act and God's design for marriage. Now there's a few things. There's a, there's, this passage is rich 
with application. There's a few things I want to take from this passage here this morning. Okay, we're not going to go into the, the debate on divorce, but what we're going to look at is, first of all, this idea that God created them male and female, and then this idea that God calls a husband and a wife to join together in this one flesh union. Okay, we're going to start with Jesus saying that in the beginning, God created male and female. That is, God created two genders. Okay, now, in our day and age, what about people who feel like they are in the wrong body? Who have the anatomy of a man but feel like a woman? Or have an anatomy of a woman who feel like a man? This is, this is real. This is in their mind. We're, we're not suggesting that those who experience these feelings are somehow faking it. Okay, these are, these are genuine feelings that they have. How are we to respond to that? Is this, is gender a psychological choice? Can you just choose your gender as our society would tell us today? Or is this a genetic or physical reality? Should we make allowances for people who identify themselves as a different gender? And how do we reconcile all these experiences that people have to what the Bible has to say? Okay, the first thing right off the bat before we dive into Jesus' statement a bit more is we must realize that issues of gender are not psychological, they're not theological, rather they're genetic, okay? I don't say this to try to sound harsh or cruel or unloving, but our gender is determined by our DNA, by our chromosomes. Every cell in your body is either going to be a masculine cell or a feminine cell. That's just the, the way that we are designed. It is, it is a genetic reality. Now, the Bible tells us that people can suppress the truth of God. And that's true. We can suppress the truth of God and we can live as if God didn't exist. We can live as if every cell in your body was female, but you're going to act like a male. You can live that way, but you cannot escape the truth of God. You can suppress God's truth, but you cannot escape that God has made us male and female. So no amount of um, feelings, no amount of surgery or hormones could ever change someone from a male to a female or vice versa, from female to a male. Okay, it's a a biological uh, constraint, a genetic constraint that we have as individuals. So what we have is not someone transitioning from a male to a female, but rather we're going to have And I don't mean to be harsh, but we're going to have feminized men or masculinized women. Okay? No one can successfully make a transition in gender because it's a biological, a genetic reality. Okay? Now, when I say this, people people are going to hear this is unloving. This is very harsh and this is very offensive to those who would identify themselves as a different gender than what they were born as. Okay, but there's also other people who are offended when this stuff goes on. And it's the people who truly are a male or female. For instance, Raquel read me an article this one week of a, of a woman who was offended at Bruce Jenner. Why was she offended because of Bruce Jenner? Because Bruce Jenner has transitioned to be a woman. And that involved, in his case, uh, putting on a very expensive dress, Uh, getting breast implants, getting cosmetic surgery, taking hormones over many years, and now he is a woman. But this woman was offended because that does not define womanhood. Womanhood is not breast implants and a fancy dress and some cosmetic surgery. That's not womanhood. That's offensive to women that a man would do that and call himself or identify as a woman. 
And this woman says, no man is ever going to experience the cramping and pain once a month and bleed every month and have the emotions and all that surround it. No man is ever going to have to to carry a child and to deliver a child. No man is ever going to go through menopause. They just can't identify with women. And that's, that's the physical things, but then there's also psychological and emotional things that women have that men cannot have because they're genetic. They're part of your DNA, your chromosomes. They're part of who you are. And so women can also be offended because of how womanhood is presented by our society here today. To be a woman does not mean that you are photoshopped and cut and mutilated to look or attempt to look like a runway model, but women are beautiful because they're women, because God has made them as women. And so they are beautiful. So I don't say this to be mean or intolerant, I'd I'd ask you also to consider some of these other issues that we have in our society today, okay? Uh, Transgenderism is big in our society today, but what about someone who is born from two black parents, okay? There's a lady who's who's black, her parents are black, but she's convinced in her mind that she is Chinese, okay? Seriously, she's completely convinced in her mind that she's Chinese and even speaks Mandarin, Okay? Now, they've had to try to communicate with this lady. They've had people who do speak Mandarin come in and and they said, she's not speaking Mandarin. It's just gibberish. It sounds a bit like it, but it's not. But this lady is completely convinced that she's Chinese and that she can speak Mandarin. Um, And she is in a mental institution because of her condition. Okay? It's not being celebrated. What about transabled? Have you ever heard of transabilism? This was an article in the National Post uh, this summer. There's a number of people in our society who want to transition to be disabled, uh, not because of an accident, uh, but because they feel that their, their limbs that they have are, are not theirs. Uh, there, was a, there was a gentleman and his, his arm that he had, he goes, that is not my arm. It should not be there. I should be disabled. And after a number of failed attempts, uh, he finally, with enough work on Google, was able to cut off his own arm and still survive. Uh, and, and then mangle his arm so the doctors couldn't reattach it and then went to the hospital. And now he's disabled and he says that I feel much better now. This is who I was supposed to be. Okay? And that's, this is called transabilism. And there are many people, okay, that have these same kinds of thoughts. So how do we decide what is a psychological disorder and what should be celebrated? How should we decide whether someone should receive an award for courage for transitioning genders versus someone who should be checked into an institution because they have mangled their body. Okay, how do we decide such things? If we don't, if we don't follow the word of God, what is our standard? Perhaps it's the consensus of, of specialists, of psychiatrists, you know, people who specialize in psychology and understanding how the human mind works. Well, what's interesting is when you look at the American Psychiatric Association. They have this manual of mental disorders. Okay, so in here they try to list a number of mental disorders, which ones should be... um, Someone needs some help to think through some of these issues. And so you would probably expect, if you look in that manual, that transgenders are are normal um, and that people like the transabled uh, are suffering for some a pretty severe mental disorder. But in fact, when you look in that... Psychiatric Association, American Psychiatric Association manual, it actually lists gender dysphoria as a mental illness. 
And transabilism is actually not in there as of yet. Um, and there's been, there've been hospitals, uh, John Hopkins Hospital. They're one of the first hospitals to do uh, transgender surgery. They no longer do it anymore because the psychiatrists won't recommend it because they say this doesn't help people. Uh, people are committing suicide um, after these had, they had these surgeries. And so they refuse to continue to do those operations. Um, so how, how do we know when we celebrate some kind of uh, psychological experience that someone has and when we say it's a disorder? Uh, think about anorexia. Uh, we probably all heard that anorexia is, is a mental disorder, something that is wrong with people who, th- who think they should be thinner and so they starve themselves or make themselves vomit. Well, there's a group today that says anorexia is not a disorder. It's a celebrated lifestyle. And so they call themselves pro-Annas or just Annas. And you can actually go online and find groups that you can join where they celebrate this kind of lifestyle. They say, stop calling it a disorder. This is, this is healthy. This is who we are. And so you can see that when you throw out any kind of objective truth, that you're left with just people's feelings. And as Christians, we must be people of the truth and of God's word. And when Jesus says he's created them in the beginning, male and female, that is a true reality. And we can't shrink back from that. That is the truth. And we know that though the truth might be hard for someone to hear, it's actually the best thing for them. It'd be unloving to convert, confirm someone in their falsehood, in, in, in some kind of mental disorder, rather than to encourage them to bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not loving um, to not call sin, sin. As Christians, we must call a disorder, a disorder. We must call sin, sin. But we must not stop there. We must give people the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That even though we're all ravaged by sins in different ways, our whole being is affected. Whether it's our emotion or our feelings, our actions, everything is affected in our, in our world and in our own souls by sin. And so we don't just need to point it out, but rather we need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so we need to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God sent his son thousands of years ago now, and he sent him publicly. So that our faith is not in mere myth or legend or fables, but God acted publicly. And so that our faith might be sure, we might have a confidence that God has dealt with sin. And so we trust him and we experience his power of sins forgiven, of new desires, a new heart. The Bible says that we are no longer uh, the old man, but rather we're a new cre- creation in Christ. The old things have gone, behold, the new have come. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope that people who suffer with confusion about genders need to know. We don't need to erase genders in our birth certificate. We don't need to... Uh, Raquel was telling me this morning how there's a university down in Texas that they're advising students not to use pronouns like he or she, but rather to use gender-neutral pronouns so not to offend anybody. That's not what we need to confirm people in those ideas. Rather, we need to confirm the God-given gender and then to give people the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of hope and salvation. So that's the first thing we notice from, from Jesus' words here, is that God has made us male and female. The second thing we want to look at is how God made marriage between one man and one woman, this one flesh union for life, no separation, no divorce, no sexual intimacy outside of this one bond. This again is God's design. God's design was male and female. God's design was marriage between male and female. Let's look back at Matthew 19. Okay, verse number four. Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So here Jesus is quoting from Genesis 2.24 when he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what's interesting before we look at the topic of marriage is the authority that Jesus puts into these words. When he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, that is God, the creator. Have you not read that God, the creator, made them male and female? That you are here because of a creative act of God. And also, do you not know that he who did that said, this is what God said, okay? Jesus is not upholding marriage between a man and a woman because that's the traditional way to do it or because that was the Jewish way, or that is just the way that, that we had just evolved to do. No, Jesus says God said that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what's interesting, when you go back to the book of Genesis, and when you read that section in Genesis 2.24, uh, those are the words of Moses. Those, that's the narrator. It's not quote, uh, not a quote from God. It, just, it comes in a, in, in a narration in Genesis chapter 2, and it was written by Moses. And that's why when the Pharisees said, well, did not Moses say this? Jesus understood that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Okay? Jesus understood that. But at the same time, Jesus understood that God wrote the first five books of the Bible. God moved Moses to pen the very words that God wanted written down. So that way Jesus could say, Moses wrote that. And the same breath also say, God said that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That is, Jesus believes that this book is God's very words, even though it was penned down by other men thousands of years before Jesus, but yet he confirms that these are God's very words. And so therefore, they're authoritative. They're not just traditional. It's not just an evolutionary thing. This is authoritative. God has designed male and female and God has designed marriage. And he did it all the way back in the beginning before there was sin. This was God's design. Now, Jesus speaks in this passage about divorce. Okay, look look at verse number seven. So Jesus tells us about the one flesh union between a male and a woman or male and a female. And then in verse seven, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Okay, so he said, it's a fair question. Jesus says, from the beginning, God made them male and female, and a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, the two shall become one flesh. They said, well, why did Moses say that they can write a certificate of divorce? And then Jesus responds in verse number eight. He says to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, divorce is the result of sin. Sin came into this world, and that's why we have divorce. That's why we have brokenness. That's why we have adultery. That's why we have homosexuality. That's why we have transgenderism, because sin has come into this world. It's also why we have pride. It's why we have gluttony. It's why we have lying and murder and hate. All those things are the result of sin. And so Jesus says divorce was never part of God's original design back in the garden, but rather because of sin came into this world. Now we see this one flesh union being broken and destroyed in a variety of ways. God's intention was one man together with one woman, one flesh for life. 
and any sexual relations outside of this union is what the Bible calls sinful. Any, any kind of sexual intimacy outside of this union of marriage, the Bible calls sinful. Okay, so Jesus never spoke, never mentioned the word homosexuality. That's true. But he defined what are the bounds of sexual intimacy. And it's in a marriage between one man and one woman in that one flesh union for life. So I was surprised recently when I was given an article, Daryl shared an article with me from the Lutheran Church. And this was a branch of the Lutheran Church that was openly supportive of uh, same-sex marriage. And this article surprisingly said the Bible doesn't actually define marriage at all. There's no definition of marriage found in the Bible. It says the Bible describes marriage between a uh, man and a wife. Yeah, it does that. But the Bible also describes marriage between a man and many wives, a man and many concubines, uh, between a uh, uh, someone who's a rapist and his victim, a conquering soldier and a female prisoner of war. So he said, because the Bible describes all of these things as, then therefore the Bible doesn't really define marriage at all. And you can see this line of argumentation just relies on the fact that people do not know the scriptures. It preys on people's ignorance from the Bible. Because yes, the Bible does describe many different things. And as we just read, it's because of sin. That's why we have polygamy. That's why we have incest. That's why we have rape. That's why we have murder. That's why we have all these relationships that are contrary to God's original design. It's because of sin. And so the Bible describes it, but the Bible only commands marriage between a male and a female, a one flesh relationship between these two. That's all the Bible commands. The Bible does define marriage and Jesus defines it right here from the beginning. And it's repeated in the teachings of Jesus. It's repeated in the New Testament over and over and over again. It's pictured in Ephesians 5 as marriage was actually designed to picture Jesus Christ and his church. This one flesh union where Christ is the head of the church and he lays down his life for the church and he sanctifies and washes the church and presents her as a bride, holy, without spot or blemish. And Paul says this is a mystery that is profound. Marriage is a profound mystery because it speaks of Christ and the church. God designed marriage to picture the gospel. Okay, so the Bible certainly defines marriage and holds it in high regard. And it's between a male and a female. And so Jesus says here, in the beginning, this is the way it was. Now, as we think about the topic of gay marriage or same-sex marriage, we must ask ourselves, okay, our culture has embraced it. We live in this society. Is it really a big deal? Okay, is it really, is it really a big deal that our culture has embraced this, that our legal system and our courts have embraced this as normal and right? Uh, is, is it really unfair that other people have the same right to marry as we do? Uh, should, we, should we really be all tied up in knots about this? Is this really a big deal? And we, we must realize that in a sense, it's not really a big deal. Okay, in a sense, it's not really a big deal. And what I mean by that is that Christians for millennia have lived in societies that were antithetical, that were against Christian values and beliefs. Okay, we're an anomaly here in North America. We've experienced hundreds of years in a society based on Christian values. But that's an anomaly. Everywhere else in the world and throughout history, Christians have been persecuted and marginalized and vilified for their beliefs. 
And so we're experiencing that small taste of that in our society today. So in one sense, it's really not a big deal that same-sex marriage has been legalized. But in another sense, it is a big deal. And not just a big deal personally for Christians, because we must face it that Christians will continue to get ostracized. Uh, no longer will you be able to serve as judges or serve as politicians or serve in positions of influence in our society because of your beliefs are unacceptable and intolerant. And so you won't be able to serve in those places. Uh, soon our, our churches will lose tax-exempt status. Soon you won't get receipts for charitable donations given to religious organizations who don't embrace same-sex marriage. That's what's coming, but that's not what I mean by, the, by what I mean. This is going to be a big deal when same-sex marriage is embraced. Those things are true, and those are coming, if not already here. But same-sex marriage is a big deal because it's concerning for our society. And not just for Christians, but for society, for way of life as we know it. Marriage was never defined by government. Government has never defined marriage. Rather, governments have recognized marriage between a male and a female and gave them special status because they recognized the people who laid down our constitutions in both Canada and the United States recognize that marriage and family is the bedrock of society. That if you have healthy marriages and have healthy families, then you're going to have a healthy society. Yes, we are individual, and, and the individual has been proclaimed to that of God in our society today. But individuals cannot make a society unless we have families and marriage and these kinds of unions. And it's not just Christians who recognize that society can crumble because of immorality. But we have Russia, for example, not a Christian nation at all. Many things, you know, some, some Christians want to praise Russia. Uh, be careful about that. Russia is wicked in many different ways. Okay, but one thing they do recognize is that their atheistic experiment of snubbing out religion did not work because it destroyed families and end up destroying their society. And so now they're trying to promote family values. They're trying to elevate marriage. They're trying to ban homosexuality and same-sex marriage. They're trying to ban pornography because they know that those things destroy homes. And if marriages and homes and the next generation is destroyed, then your society is going to crumble. So even people who, who do not follow God recognize that following the principles that we have in God's Word is going to lead to a healthy society. So in one sense... Same-sex marriage is going to be a big deal because we have opened Pandora's box in terms of how we define marriage. Because right now, marriage is being defined as two people who love one another. Okay, but what's so special about two? We have many people um, in the States, as soon, soon as that Supreme Court thing went through, began to start to file the same kinds of complaints, wanting the same kinds of status recognized to their marriage. They're either polygamous, you know, where many wives are married to one man, or uh, polyamory, which is even seems to be more popular, where you have a group of both men and women and you're all married to each other. Okay? Why should that not be allowed in our society today? And it's going to be allowed in just a matter of time because marriage is defined as people who just love one another and who want to commit to live together. And so what ends up going to happen is marriage is end up is end up becoming meaningless. 
So we have to ask, you know, as we look at, at how marriage is defined in Scripture, did God really have a have a purpose in marriage? You know, what was the what was God's purpose given in Genesis one and two for the relationship between a male and a female? Well, God gave the command to Adam and Eve to procreate, you know, to come together, be fruitful and multiply, and at the same time to take exercise dominion over the earth. And so this command to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over the earth was given to Adam and Eve and was also given to Noah. And so that design for marriage is still applicable today and people object today and say, well, we already have lots of people in our society, so we don't need this idea of procreation any longer. There's lots of people on this earth, and so we don't need to be fruitful and multiply as like they did back in the garden. Okay, but making babies is not the only outcome of marriage. It's the, it's the bedrock of our society. And time is going to tell on how it's going to impact our society, how it's going to impact the next generation and our children. Okay, the, the effects of uh, legalizing same-sex marriage and going against God's design for male and female and for marriage, time is going to tell them what that's going to mean for our coming generations. And so when we say that same-sex marriage is not that big a deal, in many ways it's not that big a deal, and in some ways, especially for our society and for our children in the next generation, this is going to be a big deal. Now, people who are not Christians are going to disagree with me here sharply, and I recognize that. Christians might even think, well, this is just doomsday speak. Our, Our society is not really that bad at all. But as Christians, we also must realize that no matter what happens, God is in complete control. Jesus Christ is still the sovereign king, still reigning and ruling. He's still calling out his people from this world. His, his promise that he made, that he says, I will build my church, is not going to fail. The gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. That still holds true. So Jesus Christ is still reigning and ruling. But we also must realize what it says in Romans chapter 1. And Romans chapter 1 says that God's wrath is being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness or by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, we can suppress the truth of God, but we cannot run from it. We are created in God's world, in his image. We can't escape our gender. We can't escape the God-given design for our society and for marriage. So we've talked a bit about, in general terms, about these things and what it means for society or for governments. But what about personally? Okay, personally, what is someone to do then who has same-sex attraction or has homosexual desires? What is the Christian perspective on this? Okay, first of all, we just look look back at some of the research and writing that's been going on there the last number of years, we must accept that our sexual orientation is not an immutable, an unchangeable part of our body. Okay, it's not genetic. And there's many studies out there that that try to study identical twins, where one has same-sex desires and the other one does not. And there's many cases like that, and, so they, and some cases where those same-sex desires end up going away. It's not something that is genetic, that is unchangeable. And we, ha- we have people, and they've written their testimonies, and you've probably heard of them, um, 
who have becoming Christian, those desires for the same sex have vanished. They have gone away. It wasn't easy. It wasn't overnight. But those things did go away. There's a book I read this week called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. And I would, I would recommend that book to you. Uh, she was an English professor, uh, self-professed uh, postmodern English professor, led a bunch of LGBTQ groups on campus, uh, was lesbian herself, lived with a partner, and was converted to Christ. And now is married to a Reformed Presbyterian pastor, is a homeschooling mother of six. Um, and so drastic. And so she, she describes her conversion as a train wreck. Her worldview was completely obliterated by the gospel and by these saints here. She says she went to church every week and was angry at what the preacher was saying. Okay? But yet, God grabbed a hold of her heart. Her sins were forgiven and she was radically transformed. So there's one example. And there are others that had the similar kinds of radical transformation, but they're not easy and also not as normal as perhaps some would like. Now, what should someone do if they have same-sex desires that do not change? There's, these are unwanted desires that do not change. Some have chosen to marry someone else of the, of the opposite gender, even though it was this was a constant battle with them. Others, um, Sam, Sam Albury, I've included his book in our handout and in insert. Uh, he's also an Anglican pastor um, who struggles with same-sex desires and he's committed to live a life of singleness. Okay? Not embracing how society wants to define him and to identify himself with his sexual desire or sexual orientation. Now, this seems like a hard saying for someone to say, if you have same-sex desires and you don't experience a transformation coming to Christ, then, then you need to remain single. That's a hard saying. I realize that. And this is exactly what the disciples said in Matthew 19. So when you look back in Matthew 19, because when Jesus talks about marriage, a one flesh union between a male and a female together for life, he goes, let no one separate that union. The disciple says, this is a hard saying. You mean that I'm tied to this ball and chain forever and I, there's no way out no matter what? Jesus is like, this is, that's a hard saying. Okay. And so, just as, as the idea, not just marriage, but singleness, is also a hard saying. And Jesus says in, um, well, look at verse number 10 in Matthew 19. It says, The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Okay, this, this saying is too hard. If I need to stay in one relationship for life, forget this. But Jesus said to them in verse 11, he says, not everyone can receive this same, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, Jesus doesn't go on and say it's hard to be married. Rather, he goes on and say it's hard saying to not be married, to remain single. Okay, and that's what Jesus addresses. And he mentions three kinds of eunuchs. Okay, what's a, what's a eunuch? Eunuch in the Bible is talking about someone who um, has some kind of um, abnormality, unable to reproduce or to have children 
or unable to engage in sexual intimacy. And so Jesus here defines three kinds of eunuchs. If you look at verse number 12, he goes, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. That is, there are some who are unable to procreate, who don't have proper function, who have been this way from a birth defect or an abnormality, a childhood accident. Something has gone wrong. And then now they are a eunuch. He goes, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Okay, this was more common than perhaps we would have thought in the ancient world. If you think about the story of Esther and the king, Esther was his queen and he had many other concubines and many other women in his harem. Now he had men who would watch over the women in his harem. Now, how is the king going to make sure that his women don't get spoiled by these men who he has as his servants? Well, he makes these men eunuchs. Um, He essentially emasculates them so that there is no way that they can take part in some of the pleasures that the king takes part in with his many wives. And so they are made eunuchs by men. That way they are now going to be a faithful servant for the king. So Jesus says there are some by birth, there are some who are going to be made eunuchs by men, and there are, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Not that they physically mutilated themselves. The Bible does not condone that. Some in history have. But yet he's talking about those who would remain single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7 to 9, if you listen to here, Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the married and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So here Paul says that singleness is a gift of God for the sake of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says the same thing here. People become eunuchs. They pledge themselves to celibacy or to singleness for the sake of the kingdom of God. Because as a single person, you can do things differently than someone who is married. And Paul himself says this in Corinthians, that someone who is married is divided between that which is temporal. He's got to care for his wife and for his kids, and he's seeking to advance the kingdom. His priorities are divided. And that's not a bad thing. But that's just the reality of it. Someone who is single does not have the same kinds of responsibilities in this life. And so Jesus acknowledges that it is a hard saying, but that some devote themselves to singleness for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And Sam Albury is an example of someone who is doing that. So if you are someone or you know someone who struggles with unwanted homosexual desires and they are not going away through much prayer and counsel from others, and you want to follow Christ's commands, and you can still follow Christ by being single. Okay, now I know how this sounds. It sounds unreasonable. It sounds restrictive. It sounds unfair. It sounds confining. This is a hard saying. Okay, that's what Jesus is saying here. And when he calls people to deny themselves and take up their cross and to follow him, that's a hard saying. And so if you struggle with unwanted same-sex attraction. That is your cross that you have to carry. Just like other people have to give up and deny themselves to follow Jesus Christ. And so it is a hard saying, especially when it feels so right. Jackie Hill Perry, who is a former lesbian, now mother, she says this, you see what God has to say about homosexuality. 
but your heart doesn't utter the same sentiments. God's word says it's sinful. Your heart says it feels right. God's word says it's abominable. Your heart says it's delightful. God's word says it's unnatural. Your heart says it's totally normal. Do you see that there is a clear divide between what God, God's word says and how your heart feels? In our day and age, experience is the arbiter of truth. Your feelings determine your reality. And we see we can't even escape our own reality, our genetic makeup. And we can't escape God's reality in terms of how he has designed marriage. But rather, we see in Romans 1 the effects of fall and the effects of sin. And we see people suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's what we do. We self-deceive rather than following the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so denying sex, denying marriage and fighting these same sex desires may be what it means for someone to follow Jesus Christ, to deny themselves, to take up their cross and to follow him. Now, some are going to cry and say, that's not fair. It's just not fair that I have those desires. And that's an honest cry of the heart. And that's the cry of everyone's heart in one way or another. We all struggle with sin in different sorts different lusts, different things that our heart produces that are unwanted. And we all groan. And Romans 8 says, creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God until God comes and makes his creation new. So he removes these sinful impulses and desires from our heart and defeats them once for all. And we have new bodies, free from sin, able to see God as he is and to worship him and to honor him and give thanks to him, to have those burdens lifted. That's the hope of Christians. And so our heart does groan in this life, crying out that this is not the way things are supposed to be, and it is not. So if you struggle with these things, then you must know that you are not alone in denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Christ. We're all called to do that. The first disciples gave up homes and land and family to follow Christ. Some have remained single to follow Christ. Some have given up wealth to follow Christ. Some have endured immense physical and emotional persecution to follow Christ. Some have given up careers to follow Christ. Some have given up their lives in acts of obedience as they followed Christ. And so you are not alone in this church. The church has long dealt with serious issues. The church has long dealt with problems like addiction, adultery, divorce, um, depression, These kinds of things have have ravaged both non-Christians and Christians, and the church has dealt with those things. And the church in this day and age is just beginning to realize what it means to extend grace and to minister to those who struggle with unwanted same-sex desires. But the church is a place for all people who recognize the Lordship of Christ and want to follow Him. So you're not alone in the church, you're also not alone with God, because God is your refuge. God is your rock. The Bible calls him a fortress, a companion, a counselor, a protector, the giver of life. And he doesn't leave you as you are. He wondrously forgives. He changes hearts. He changed lives and circumstances. God does this. He he takes pleasure and delight in taking what is broken and sinful and making it new. And he does that through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is hope in God. So you don't live for the approval of your peers. I hear so many testimonies from people who struggle with homosexuality. And they say, in, the, in a church, in a traditional church, who is not affirming, I felt depressed. 
I felt dirty. I felt just gross and marginalized. But as soon as I went to an affirming church, I felt at liberty. I felt approval. I now bear fruit for Christ in the kingdom. I don't feel depressed any longer. That's a testimony that we hear so often. But that testimony is contrary to what the scripture has to say. Because the Bible doesn't say you're going to find hope when you receive the approval of others. Okay, people are suicidal today not because they don't get the approval of the church and of society. People are suicidal because they have no hope. Because there's no reason to keep on going. That's antithetical to Christianity. The Christian message is there's always hope. Because Jesus Christ has died and he's ruling and reigning. And so there's no suicide for the Christian because God is your hope. It doesn't matter if everyone turns your back on you. You have approval of no one. God is there. And God is your hope. You read the Psalms. Look at David. When there was no one with him any longer, God was his refuge. God was his hope. God is what kept him going. And so even though times are bleak, it doesn't mean that you should search out an affirming church or someone to affirm you in your sin rather recognize that God is your only hope. God is what you need. Now, as an application to our church in particular, okay, there's a, an application to our church. We need to, as a church, our church and church in general, we need to step up on this issue. Singles in churches today can seem marginalized, can seem unimportant, the family and homeschooling, children, these kinds of things can be elevated to define what it means to be godly and what it means to be normal in the church. And if you don't have this kind of relationship, then what is wrong with you? You know, if you're single, what is wrong? Oh, you must be struggling with homosexual desires. No, just because you're single doesn't mean that you have these homosexual desires. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. Okay, the church needs both married people and single people. They both have different gifts to contribute to the body of Christ. There's, there's going to be iron sharpening iron. We have to learn from each other. If we as a church elevate, and we should elevate marriage, but if we elevate marriage to the point where this defines what is godly, no wonder singleness seems like a death sentence. No wonder when we say you might have to remain single, single if you keep having these same-sex desires. No wonder that seems like torture because we've elevated marriage to the position of if you aren't married, then you aren't godly. Okay, so we as a church also can learn from this. So as we come to the, this topic here, as we can have some concluding thoughts about homosexuality, about same-sex marriage, we must conform our minds as Christians and non-Christians, to what God has revealed to us, how God has designed and made us as male and female, and how God has designed marriage. We also must realize that it is God who has sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. So as we go and we tell people about what the Bible says about homosexuality, we don't stop there and say, this is a sin and you're a sinner. We don't stop there. We tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter whether it's a homosexual or someone who's a liar or someone who is unfaithful, uh, someone who is involved in a, a relationship that is not in that one flesh union between a husband and wife. We call sin for what it is, but then we also tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's that bad news that leads to the good news. 
Jesus Christ has come to this earth to save sinners. And Paul says, of which I am foremost, I'm chief. And so we go as sinners to other sinners with a message that we've received, with a gift that we've received free of charge. And now we offer it to others. And if they revile and hate and persecute, we make sure that they're not hating because we're being obnoxious, but it's because the message is being rejected. Okay, we want people to deal with the word of God, not with us as the messengers. So we have to give people the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and we also must call people to repentance. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. The apostles preached, repent and be baptized. So repentance is not an action just for homosexuals. Repentance is not an action just for a select few. All of us are called to repentance. Jesus Christ has been elevated to the right hand of the Father, and now he commands all men everywhere to repent and to believe the gospel. Okay? Now, what does repentance mean? Repentance is, is commonly defined as a change of mind. Okay, so what, do you, what do you need to change your mind about in repentance? Well, it starts off, you need to change your mind about sin. You need to change your mind about what sin is. Sin is not just, well, it's not best. I just don't prefer it. It doesn't make me feel good. Now, sin is an affront to God. It's going against his created and designed order of things. It's an act of rebellion. It's saying, well, you said I need to do it this way. I'm going to do it this way. It's an elevating of yourself. So you need to change your mind about what sin is. Repentance also means you've got to change your mind about who you are. Okay? We do not identify ourselves based on our sexual orientation. We identify ourselves when we confronted with the gospel as sinners in need of God's grace. So repentance involves a change of mind of who you are as a sinner. Not just that there's some bad things that have happened to you and you're in a difficult spot, but rather from your own heart, there is wickedness and deceit and malice and envy and all those things proceed from within and we ourselves are sinners. Repentance also means that you change your mind about God. That God is not some big fuzzy in the sky who's going to affirm everyone no matter what their lifestyle choice is. Rather, God is loving. He has his way of things. He's just and he is holy and he is righteous. And so you must repent and understand who God is rightly. And repentance is going to mean that you yourself will change. As you change your mind on what sin is and who we are as sinners and who God is, it's going to lead to a changed life, change in actions. If I say, I'm going to change my mind, I don't want any more dessert, and then I eat that second piece of pie. I haven't really changed my mind. Okay, I might have said a few words that it sound polite, but I didn't really change my mind. Same thing, if you change your mind about sin, about yourself and about who God is, yet there's no change in your life, you haven't really changed your mind. The Bible doesn't call us to repent once, and now you're done with it. The Bible calls us to repentance, to a life of repentance, to a life of believing. We don't stop believing, we don't stop repenting. As Christians, We are called to repent, to continue to renew our minds on what sin is, on who God is, and on who we are before God, and about the beauties and the glories of Jesus Christ, and continue to believe and to continue to change and to be renewed. The Bible is clear that those who do not repent, the unrepentant, those who persist in sin, will go to hell. Okay, unrepentant sin is simply not 